Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, roll them. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hat smiley face. Was I supposed to say that? Yeah. Oh, or was yeah. I supposed to act that out? Hello and welcome to the China Shop. I'm opening the doors today. Oh, this shopkeeper Dan here with me as always is Kyle, creator of FinancialNeptitude.com. Hey Kyle, you got anything clicky in your hand right now? No. No. no? This is the third or fourth time we're trying to record this intro. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I keep picking things up and making stupid noises. Anyway, I'm doing fantastic. We got a crazy awesome interview for you today. Uh, but first, let's check in. Check in. Uh, how are you doing today, Kyle? I'm fantastic. Still. Still. For the fourth right. time. For the fourth time, <laughs> Kyle's still doing fantastic. Oh, uh, well, I think we better just jump into it then. Yes. So let's introduce our guest. Folks, we are so super, super excited. We've got with us today uh, Dan Legault from Antibes. Therapeutics. How are you doing today, Dan? A uh, real pleasure to be uh, to be joining you. One in Illinois, one in Arizona. Awfully excited. Been really excited about having you on the show too. Um, I got to say, we've been interacting with some of the investors on StockTwits, and oh my gosh, you guys have a one heck of a knowledgeable uh, group of investors there in the retail world. Yes. Yeah, well, that, 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 that's great. I correspond with the, with the, with a number of them. I sort of uh, make it a point of pride of corresponding with anyone who e- emails me. Um, uh, we, we, we really do have a, a group of loyal uh, shareholders, and we, and we love them, of course. Well, and that's in this modern era of investing, that's one of the things that catches my attention is the excitement level because a lot of retail, you know, retail investing is changing where, where there's a lot more research available and a lot more people sharing their knowledge. So when there's excitement uh, on social media that I come across from, from people who, when you talk to them, they're very informed, very mm-hmm. informed. Uh, that's that's a good sign to me, uh, right. and, and and to know that the company themselves are, are reaching out and interacting uh, right up to the CEO level. That's that's fantastic. That's fabulous. Sounds like you actually set the trend before Aaron Adam or yeah Aaron Adams from uh, uh, AMC did. I think he's been getting a lot of <laughs> love for being on Twitter. <laughs> right, right. So Dan, tell us a, a little bit. Uh, where did where does the name Antibes come from? Because I know you're a pharmaceutical company, and you know maybe I'm ignorant down here in the states, but Antibes doesn't uh, doesn't evoke the feeling of medicine to me. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, we love the name. It's actually named after the town of Cap d'Antibes, uh, the the beautiful medieval town in the Mediterranean, right near Nice, between Nice and Monaco. It sort of juts in there. Now a bit of a jet set um, place. Uh, sort of a romantic name for a biotech company. But our founder and my longtime, mm-hmm. <laughs> my our founder and my longtime friend and our chief science officer John Wallace. Uh, he was um, he was uh, chairing the the science board of advisors of an awfully 
cool uh, French company. Uh, and that area really is the Silicon Valley of France. And so when he would go over there for a meeting, mm. he would hang out and kept on team and, and just uh, just fell in love with the place. And I know it because um, I spent a lot of time in France and, and, and it's just... Um, it, it's just adorable. And so he, he said, you know, he was onto the thing that we're on, on about. And so he said, I'm going to name the company mm-hmm. after uh, this beautiful, uh, um, amazing place. And of course, we love the name. Oh, yeah. It sounds a lot better than, you know, Toronto or, yeah, yeah, or, yeah, or <laughs> Triel. Tech RX or something. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, Dan, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, what your company does? The Otenaproxisol, the, the hydrogen sulfide platform in general, like how you guys developed it, how that came into being, where that's going, the uses, all that kind of good stuff. Sure. So we're attacking the, the age-old problem of the ulcers and bleeding that you get from common everyday painkillers. I, I bet the two of you uh, take them. I do from time to time, along with 90%, mm-hmm. 90% of Americans. It's These are the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, aspirin, Advil, Proxen, mm-hmm. Aleve, Motrin, you know, it just goes on and on. They've been around for 50 years. Aspirin's been around for 100 years. For the full 50 years, it's been known that they cause ulcers and bleeding in the stomach and the intestines in about 25% of people. And it's been an incredibly hard problem to solve, but there are no good alternatives. They don't, they're really, are, it's only really right. the, the opioids, which have uh, their own problems. So that's why doctors yeah. prescribe them every day. And, and so many people take them in, uh, you know, 90% of Americans, 2 billion people around the world. And then you, then they monitor you, they, you, you know, your lovely Congresswoman, of course, uh, D- Debbie Dingell just uh, had, had an issue, um, just bringing it right to the fore. We think we have solved that. And, and it's, and it's actually quite, quite fascinating in this age old problem. I mean, if you can solve this problem, you'll sell $30 billion, $30 billion with a B, a B for Bob. And that's actually well known. So everyone and their uncle have gone, taken a run at this problem over the past 30 years, including almost all of major pharma and came up with drugs such as, you yeah. know, like Celebrex and Vioxx, for example. Uh, these drugs were a bit better on the sunny intestines, but they were killing you for heart reasons. And so most of them were withdrawn. <laughs> Not a good thing. Uh, Celebrex uh, never was, became quite, a, a, you know, continues to be a large money maker. But in, in 2008, the American Heart Association came out with a strong recommendation that doctors start with naproxen, which is now the dominant uh, NSAID in the United States for osteoarthritis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and as it turns out, my college roommate, who would have thought, uh, this smart, funny guy back in the 70s, uh, he's, he, he's a superstar. And, and, and your readers would see that in 10 seconds of due diligence. You just go, just mm-hmm. Google it. Um, John did his post-doctorate in the 80s for uh, John Vane. John Vane is better known as Sir John Vane and Nobel Prize winner for discovering how aspirin works. No one knew. And, and 10 years later, my John is credited with discovering how these drugs cause the ulcers and bleeding. Just a huge uh, discovery, and, and there's a whole body of work there, and, and, um, and he's gone on to be a superstar in the field. And then very interestingly, 10 years, it's, it's neat. And, uh, and then 10 years later, um, John made another major discovery, uh, namely that hydrogen sulfide is the body's key mediator or, or manager of inflammation. Uh, he did that around 2002. Um, uh, just uh, huge. You know, how John came to be working with uh, hydrogen sulfide is through uh, his and our longtime association with Lou Ignaro from UCLA. Lou himself has the Nobel Prize in medicine for 1998 for his work with wow. what are now called the gaseous mediators. So nitric oxide, 
hydrogen sulfide, they both come out of smokestacks, and carbon monoxide comes out of the exhaust pipe of your pickup truck. I mean, uh, who would have thought these things were known for 100 years as poisonous gases, but at the individual molecule level, they play key roles in our body, hence the, uh, they're signaling molecules. They carry an electrical signal um, um, across the cell wall or across the synapse, and it's um, um, just fascinating. Um, and, and, of course, under, how, you know, it wins the Nobel Prize. So how do you figure that out? Uh, how do you – Like, how do you even get to that point? Like, you just – oh, I think I'll just try injecting some hydrogen sulfide into this little creature and see if it repairs some intestinal damage. <laughs> I assume it's more than that, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's a bit more than that. But uh, <laughs> but fundamentally, the um, the thing that uh, that eases the inflammatory pain is the same thing is the same thing that causes um, the, the ulcers and bleeding. That's why it's been such a hard, hard problem to to solve to solve. And so all these people who put buffered coatings on it or extended it doesn't work. It, 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 it it's it's right. that's why it's been so so hard to solve. And so. So when John, John just, he's a base scientist, like, you know, he works with mice and test tubes. And, and, and when John discovered that hydrogen sulfide is, he, he was actually, there, there really was an aha moment, um, you know, quite like the light bulb mm-hmm. going on. He, he, he saw that in the, in, in the blood vessel, and we have a movie, it's fascinating. It, you know, you see the blood flowing along this uh, venue yeah, the venule in the intestine of a rat. And then every now and then you see these white little globs sticking like Velcro to the blood vessel wall. Those are neutrophils, these blood um, components. And that sticking, that Velcro-like action is the first part of the inflammatory cascade. And then those things migrate into the tissue and cause all this inflammation. And John realized, because he can halt the natural production of hydrogen sulfide, John realized that, oh my gosh, if I stop that, these proliferate, the Velcro action really increases. And and it's hydrogen sulfide that prevents that. And so John then had this brainstorm idea, very simple. And he said, you know, what happens if I took a molecule, namely a drug, and I, I attached to it another molecule that will release hydrogen sulfide. And the combined molecule, you know, will be a new molecule. I can get a new patent for that. And so John made, with, with, with uh, chemists, three chemists, made dozens of these, dozens of donors, and then dozens of, of uh, NSAIDs. And so we have a lot of these, and we're bringing three to market. Um, it's, it, it's not easy to do, and it took years. And, um, yeah. uh, um, and then we chose, of course, the best ones. And so a tenoproxisol, is is essentially a molecule that releases hydrogen sulfide attached to the naproxen molecule. It acts like a new molecule, um, albeit exhibiting characteristics of naproxen, which is the, the main NSAID in the United States. And the results have been the, the results, as you can see, have been phenomenal. We have more published work in in academic journals. This is not your Friday night reading. I let me tell you. But um, <laughs> we have more uh, published uh, work than, than Merck or Pfizer or, or, or anyone. That's, it's because John has been doing this for 30 years and with our drugs for, for 15. But uh, so, it's, so we have a, really do have an abundance of data, including in all the difficult stuff where you take animals and, and you use diseased animals or animals that have some sort of compromised um, defensive systems and NSAIDs. You know, if you give them an NSAID, the bad damage will triple. Whereas with our drugs, it will remain safe. Remain safe. And now we've shown this in 
and our large phase 2B study with 250 people. So, so you know, for a boring problem of ulcers and bleeding in the stomach and the intestines, it's pretty exciting. We are very excited. That doesn't sound boring to me, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a real problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, God, why did it take so long to, to uh, you know, if you said 2002, that's when he kind of made this discovery. Why does it take so long to get something developed like that? Well, it, uh, for well, first of all, there's a lot of years of pure science, and and then mm-hmm. and then John is also um, uh, John is also an expert in, in inflammatory bowel disease, and 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 we worked on inflammatory bowel disease, and then when the 2008, uh, and then we were working on the NSAIDs, so, and then when the 2008 financial meltdown happened. We were going to do all of our various drugs. We're working a whole series of diseases. Um, we were going to do them all simultaneously. And after the 2008 fin- financial meltdown, we said, let's just concentrate on our best ones, and, and which happened to be also the largest market. And they were the most recent from a patent light, right. which were the NSAID. So we really started um, from scratch in 2009. Nonetheless, it takes a long, long time uh, to develop uh, dr- drugs. You know, it's it's we're 50 years later than thalidomide. And uh, so, so so the, the you know it just gotten it's it, it's um that's why it's pretty amazing for the whole world to come up with these uh, vaccines so so fast but but normal drugs take fifteen years or so yeah uh, that's the nineteen sixty two amendment I can't remember the actual name of it yeah, right it, uh, yeah that. yeah it, it, what was the name of the drug the thermo thermodide thermodide thalidomide 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 thank you had caused all the birth defects yes right yes. I can't understand how anything ever gets done the way that that regulation is written. I mean, it took, it went from like two years to develop something to 14 after that or 15, I think. Yeah. It, it, yes. It's a strange business model. Um, you, you know, you can be worth a, a billion dollars. Um, most analysts think that that's what we should be worth. Um, you can be worth a billion dollars and, and still be several years from revenue. It's just, uh, it, it, it is a, um, right. you know, it's a rather from an, from a retail investment point of view, it's a, it's a challenging field. Um, it's not, it's not, it's not like software. Yeah. It's wildly more complicated. Well, you, and you need investors that are going to be in it for the long haul too, because they have to wait through uh, a long development period. It sounds like you guys are getting really close though. Uh, you finished your phase two. It looked like you guys got approval to, uh, I'm not sure if that's plan your phase three. I think you're able to submit the plan for that. Or are you we, we, um, we received our IND from the FDA in the United States. And that essentially, uh, that means we can do clinical trials in the United States. We have a small one going on right now, a small um, study of volunteers, a scientific study as we're getting ready for our phase threes. We, we um, only filed our IND in the United States recently because we did all of, all of our work. We've already been in. We've already done five uh, or six clinical trials and in, in, in hundreds of people. We did it in Canada. So guess how many pages? Here's a fun fact for you. <laughs> guess how many pages are... IND application was to the uh, FDA. 702. And Dan? 703. <laughs> uh, f- 1,500 pages? I asked my daughter this to guess this when she was doing a major paper for her third year at university. Uh, she said 300. 55,000. Oh, my God. What? 55,000 pages? Take you two years to write that. Oh, okay. It was a whole team of us. Um, yeah, no, it's just... Yeah. 
Yeah, it's amazing. It's interesting. So FDA approval gets you licensed in uh, America. Does Canada reciprocate that or can you get licensed in other countries? Like is it, if you get FDA approval here, are you good to sell anywhere else or do you have to go through the approval process everywhere? You, you have to go through the approval process everywhere. Oh my gosh. How, however, there, it, it's infinitely easier. Um, first of all, there is a lot of harmonization, uh, you know, through through um, diplomacy uh, over the decades. Mm-hmm. All the Western world countries certainly have uh, sort of more landed together and they provide a lot of respect for studies done elsewhere and 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 this is particularly so with the with with the um, the FDA the FDA is clearly the premier agency the the next important one is, is Europe yeah. mm-hmm. so 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 for example it would not it would if we were approved in, in the United States it would not be difficult uh, to get approved in Canada Okay, so you wouldn't have to basically start from scratch. No, no, then you could at least use some of that other work. It sounds like you, you, all of it. We would not have to do any more sci- scientific work. Uh, in, 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 in for Europe, right. well, we'd have to do an extra study, and for Asia, we would have to do smaller extra studies because there are some uh, some genetic differences in that sort of thing. But by and large, the world would rely on the uh, the U.S. data. It looks like you partnered with, or uh, you you developed a licensing agreement with Nuance Pharma. Is part of that for them to to do those approval processes throughout uh, China? Yes, we're we are thrilled. A great uh, great company. It was our fourth deal, actually. Um, yeah, we've oh, licensed okay. the tenaproxyls for some fifty countries. China was the largest one. We, we were, and these things these things help. They give us validation. They give us non dilutive money. Uh, but now we're are, are, are we're now in dialogue for the large uh, markets in, in the big five in Europe and the United States, of course, and Japan. But we were very very pleased with the, with the Chinese deal. First of all, those. The terms were quite attractive that we received. It sort of raised the eyebrows of the industry because we negotiated quite nice terms. And they're a great company. They, you know, their their CEO more or less built the commercial franchise for AstraZeneca. And he's a South African, but deeply knows the Chinese uh, commercial landscape, which is rapidly evolving, actually. And and we received a real really nice money. Plus, we we have essentially a veto. And it's 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 a quite a friendly partnership. But they they want they, they want and respect our. Uh, involvement in their clinical trial process will have to do a phase three trial in, in China. Mm-hmm. Do you worry at all about intellectual property theft? I think China is kind of known for that. Y- y- yes, you do. Um, less so in the pharmaceutical world because uh, um, it, it, it's, you know, you can, our recipe is on the internet and you can get it in two hours. <laughs> it's just that you can't sell it. So it, it, it just takes years. And, and China wants to sell drugs to the rest of the world. They're, they're, their industry is becoming very, very right. sophisticated. And so this is not going to help them from a reputation point of view but but nuance is very is very mm-hmm. western oriented all, all their senior team have, ex, have extensive western company experience so the concerns are legitimate that you, you're talking about but they're minimized with the case of nuance gotcha dan i think you started to ask a question about four or five minutes ago <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so so these drugs they are going to be are they going to be over the counter when when they make it to market assuming they make it to market e- eventually uh, usually uh, over the counter drugs start out as prescription drugs so uh, then you need um, more extensive uh, studies to bring them over the counter so uh, um, naproxen as i m- mentioned which is a you know the dominant uh, NSAID for for osteoarthritis for example in the united states mm-hmm. uh, took years but then be- then um, and became at half the the standard prescription dose became Aleve, an over the counter drug. And Aleve is only you know, it was only just a f- short number of years ago that it was approved for over the counter in Canada. So so eventually, but um, uh, but the 
India's prescription market is massive. Just just from a prescription point of view, yes, should yes. Uh, you know should we uh, get to market? The big uh, you know there's still risk. Uh, should we get to market just in in the you know just in the five main countries of Europe, Japan, and the United States, and just in those seven countries, and just for osteoarthritis, let alone low back pain and everything else. You know we've done extensive commercial studies. These were done by well-known strategy consultancies. You know, just in those seven countries and just for osteoarthritis, we would uh, likely sell over $4 billion a year of prescription drug uh, in just in those seven countries uh, at, at, at our peak year of sales. So, I mean, we're focused on the prescription market. Uh, our, we would we yeah. would be long gone, uh, in, you know, before a large pharma took our drug over the counter. So, yeah, speaking of, yeah, we'd be long gone by that that time. There was some some buzz on the on the online communities talking about wondering about I should say uh, the depth of your scientific and research team and like, do you have a succession plan because like Dr John Wallace seems to be a, a guru amazing genius scientist man and people worry like what if he got in a car wreck tomorrow what what would the company what would happen to the company also that question is from Louise so thank you Louise for submitting that yes. Thank you, Louise. John was my college roommate, as I as I mentioned forty years ago. So, so, so yeah. we've been um, we, we've been <laughs> friends for a long, long time. And so, uh, so John, um, be not willing, um, since we got hit by the proverbial bus. Oh, I don't think we would. Yeah. We, we wouldn't really uh, skip a beat because he's a base scientist, and we're so far beyond that with our lead drug because it's all regulatory development and but for our newer discoveries which are very keen on but you know they take time uh, john john's hugely just hugely valuable and as a matter of fact at christmas time i wrote an internal memo i called it christmas thoughts and um because because of <laughs> because of john's uh, discovery in hydrogen sulfide and our and our knowledge now that hydrogen sulfide plays so many roles not only the main in inflammation, but also in cellular repair and cellular cellular protection. I mean, it's now known, it wasn't known when John was in all this, it's now known that every cell in our body makes mm-hmm. hydrogen sulfide. Every cell in our body, most of it in the brain. So do the bacteria. Um, hydrogen sulfide makes hmm. ATP, you know, you know, poor Miss poor Miss Barry, my lovely high school biology teacher would turn over in her grave, uh, you know, because we were taught that Oxygen is, is needed, but uh, hydrogen sulfide also makes fundamental unit of energy in a cell. And uh, so, so, really, yeah. And as a matter of fact, you know, when life was forming on our planet some 2.6 billion years ago, there was no oxygen. It was all hydrogen sulfide. Wow. And, and uh, so, a lot of scientists think that's why it's so so important. Oxygen. Oxygen didn't show up until 2 billion years later. Oxygen had only been around for 600 million years in our atmosphere. I mean, just fascinating. Uh, so, so we want to move beyond the gut into all sorts of things. This is our long range and, and we we're mighty focused on a tanaproxisol, of course, because that's where the vast majority of our value is. But we, you know, we love this. And so we want to move beyond. And so the strategy, I called it, we need more baby Johns. <laughs> so uh, uh, John, um, you know, when John was doing all this, work. He was about 38 years old, uh, you know, in that magical time from 32 to 48. He was just pumped through an enormous amount of stuff. But we're very interested in respiratory illnesses and Alzheimer's and the cardiology mm-hmm. and anti-infectives. Um, 
that, that sort of thing. And each of these needs, you know, that 35 year old John Wallace. So, so, but we, we know so many people. And so we're actively uh, in dialogue on, on those things. And, uh, and they don't have to work full time for us. They can be academic professors, you know. Yeah. Does the hydrogen sulfide show any promise in those regards? Or are you still just looking uh, at the basic levels at this point as far as like Alzheimer's and that? Oh, it shows huge promise. I mean, we've long predicted that they're going to find the link to Alzheimer's. I mean, whatever the hell Alzheimer's is, you know that, you know, are, are, are all these tangles, is that the result or is that the cause? I mean, you, you just know that, you just know that inflammation is at the cause of it. And observationally, it was, five years ago, it was, it was observed that Alzheimer's patients have markedly less endogenous, endogenous means, you know, naturally producing, much less um, natural production of hydrogen sulfide. And sure enough, just after Christmas, Johns Hopkins put out a paper showing the link to hydrogen sulfide so you know i, I would uh, i would bet you a beer that in my lifetime in, in my lifetime <laughs> alzheimer's is going to get uh, we'll, we'll get uh, solved by some sort of medication right. involving hydrogen sulfide i hope it's quick because my family has a history of it yeah, yeah yeah i'd love to see on come out with that drug my family too <laughs> yes yeah yeah me too though that's a, unfortunately it's a it'll take some time but we're, but uh, that's something that we would lo- love to explore yeah, yeah. Um, oh, uh, you mentioned the um, otenoproxisol being, uh, uh, or at least the the opioids being something that you're looking to pre- replace with your hydrogen sulfide uh, platform. Have you seen any opposition from the opioid industry? Oh, no, n- none. Any smear campaigns or anything like that? Nothing shady. <laughs> oh, I think we're too tiny for <laughs> for, the, for them to. Okay. Yeah. Besides, they sort of learned their lesson. I mean, uh, no, no, no. I I think they'd be the first to to acknowledge that it's a big enough world out there, and and, and the world definitely needs uh, safer uh, pain, pain medicine. Yes. For the uh, as far as the phase, uh, the different phase trials go, can you explain the difference between like phase one, phase two, phase three? Absolutely. Uh, like, what are the metrics that? Yeah, just we'll start with that, and I'm sure uh, more as we go. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Uh, let me start even earlier, and I can do it pretty quickly. Generally speaking, you know, after the Second World War, most drugs, almost all the drugs, came from big pharma. Mm-hmm. Today, much, much less than twenty percent of drugs come from big pharma. It, it, they mostly come from small companies like on T. Science is exploding, and one company can't know everything. So, so, the, so the general, uh, the you know, the rough general ideas is that neat discoveries happen in universities and, and then and then if you can get what is generally called academic proof of concept meaning they they get a discovery they do all sorts of stuff and then they put it into animals and then they uh, like rats and um and and they went oh my god i'm onto something at that point usually a company would, would have been formed at that point it can generally attract real money because at animal proof of concept you start what is called the ind enabling studies like the Formal studies that you need to do to be able to put a drug into a human being. That's called the uh, the IND enabling stage, and then you uh, file for your uh, uh, you know you file for your first human trial, and that is generally called a phase one. You use healthy volunteers, you know, university students or whatever, <laughs> and almost every drug does a very similar phase one program, and it's just for overall safety. Um, and it's, these things are extremely well controlled. Doctors twenty four seven and and that sort of thing. So, and they're all very similar. So if, if you do that, then you do phase two. It's usually two or more trials, but essentially um, you're trying to 
show human proof of concept. So now, now you're actually in patients addressing the issue that for which you've designed the drug, and you're also trying to set the dose for the phase three trials. And that, but the phase two is generally culminates in in a human proof of concept, and then you go move on to the phase three trials, which are generally a, a repeat of the phase two, but in for longer duration and in larger numbers of people, and that's phase three. Mm. So uh, if you show promise in phase two, I mean, you're not necessarily guaranteed to to show the same thing in phase three, what are some of the, the, the pitfalls then? Or, or why do you think that is? Sure. sure. I mean, it used to be, phase three used to be particularly risky. These, the, the risk has gone down over time, but the length of time, you know, the length of work, the numbers of things you have to do prior to that has increased also. Mm-hmm. So today on average, and, you know, on a bell curve on average, um, about less than 20%, which is quite still risky, but quite lovely, uh, fewer than 20% fail. The vast majority, sometimes they fail for lack of efficacy or, uh, you know, you just can't, you, you were, in other words, your, your proof of concept might not have been all that strong. All, um, more likely, you, you fail for some unknown problem because you're doing much longer, you know, you're doing much longer duration trial or, or, or and, in, and in larger numbers of people. So more chances for like side effects to pop up or something that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And if, and if you, you know, that's, you know, we've only uh, been in human beings for two weeks and yet our tenoproxacil would be a chronic a medicine, meaning that you can, you know, take it every day for the rest of your lives. So, so our phase threes, we, we have to do, uh, you know, the primary phase threes are, are two, all phase threes need to be two identical trials in different locations. And, and the primary ones are these pain trials for us uh, in placebo controlled. However, 100 people at the end of the three-month trial, 100 people will continue for an additional nine months. They'll, the, 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 you know, the blinding will be broken, so they'll know they're on drug, but they will be mo- monitored. So we will have at least 100 people for a full 12 months. That's a requirement for our drug. Now, uh, this question comes from uh, the StockTwits community, user MH5555. Uh, he wanted to know if there is a reason for the staggered phase three versus running concurrently, because he said that in his mind that would increase the uh, or extend the timeline significantly. Yeah, that's a, a very astute uh, question. The reason for that is our first phase three trial, we're going to um, do multiple, uh, have two arms of our drug. Our drug has shown more efficacy than we thought it would in the phase twos, and it's and it has given us and has given us you know the good problem or the nice problem that we still have not found the lowest effective dose. Oh. And in generally, the FDA, certainly in pain drugs, you know, the, the classic uh, funny line, like, how much drug do you give? Well, you as much as you need, as little as possible. <laughs> so the FDA will, will um, require you to show the lowest effective dose. And so we haven't yet done that. We did three doses in our face, but all three of the doses showed great efficacy. So, huh. so uh, we're going to do a two-arm dose. And halfway through, there's a chance that we can then start um, the, the next trial. But that'll be at, be at the dose that we uh, that we discover to be the lowest effective dose. So that's why it's staggered. So the problem is you haven't figured out how little you that, need to be that, effective. That, that, that's a that's great correct. problem yeah. to have. 
Uh, he had another question here that I thought was pretty good too. Are you guys exploring other partnerships to advance other HS2 drugs and uh, into trials faster, like uh, leveraging other larger biotech companies to run those trials for you? Well, we are. We, you know, we are on the classic. You know, when I describe the various phases from a business point of view, the generally speaking, though of course there's all kinds of exceptions, but generally speaking, the optimal time to partner is sometime after phase two, while you're doing the phase three threes, and and that's what we're doing. So we are on the classic parallel track, moving forward as expeditiously as we can, and we have the full team and capability of doing that, and money, which is fantastic to do our phase threes while in parallel um, you know, we're now engaged in dialogue with partnering uh, our drug and um, and so you know should we get a good offer we would and from a very reputable larger company we would probably hand over all routes and pass the baton and then move on to our um, to our other um to our other drugs. And you have three of those in the pipeline right now from what I could see on your website. 352 was one that looked really promising, but that one looked like it hadn't done or is in the middle of phase one. Did I see that right? Or is pre-trials? It's in pre-trials. It, 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 they all are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have pre-trials. ATB 352, ATB 340, and, um, and we're moving forward again on inflammatory bowel disease. We don't yet have a numbered can't there, though we have 60, <laughs> 60 molecules that we're, that we're actually um, screening at the moment. Has anybody submitted Dr. John Wallace for a Nobel Prize yet? Because, <laughs> I mean, good yeah. Lord. You know, I, I know you're, you're sort of jesting, but here's a... No, really, I mean, seriously, yeah. Yeah, here's a here's a neat human story. I mean, I, I'm not a scientist. I, I'm a lawyer by my previous life. But I was, um, you know, if you look on our website, you see the the, the, the science advisory board. And I was at, um, I was going to, you know, we, a whole bunch of us, we were actually in London, England, and so prior pre-pandemic, but a whole bunch of us were, I was sort of, I wasn't saying much, but I was sort of leading it. Um, you know, and we were in a conference room and we're, then we're going to go out for a, a great dinner because all these people are friends, even though they all live in other sites of the world, brainstorming new potential areas for us to, uh, to explore. It was just so fascinating. It was, it was great. And it was, it was a brainstorm among people, many of whom have known each other for decades and, um, all eminent scientists. You can see them all. They're, they're on, they're on our website. And, you know, just from a body language point of view, the, the deference shown John was, was fascinating. Including by a Nobel Prize, including oh, by wow. a Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they yeah. they really do yeah. think of John as a. Uh, that's the real deal, you know. It sounds like it. Oh my goodness, uh, Dan. Do we have any other reader questions or uh, questions from the the stock twits community? Yeah, we've got we got quite a few. The one I wanted to ask before we we mined for another one of those. I noticed there was very recently within the last couple of days there was news of an amalgamation transaction. Yes. Could you could you explain to us what that was? Sure. So in two thousand and four, John he had now come up with a whole series of candidates, and they're looking might very very promising and started a company on team and then he actually googled me um and because uh, we never lived in the same city after <laughs> <laughs> after university it said i'm on to some flew into toronto and so we so we, we move this forward and my plan was i'm going to put each indication each family of drugs into a separate wholly owned subsidiary company then finance those subsidiaries mm -hmm separately because one venture capital company might not be in, interested in inflammatory bowel disease, but very interested in pain, for example. So I was going to do e 
I was yep. going to do right. each indication in a separate subsidiary, and and that was um, so, so. But then, as I mentioned earlier in this um, as, in this conversation, um, with the two thousand eight financial meltdown, I mean, biotech financing was just decimated. Done, yeah. <laughs> and, and I realized I, I wasn't going to be able to do a whole series of indications simultaneously. And that would have been too hard to um, finance. So I I, I I sucked it up and um, and and decided to to um, move forward with our the drugs that were performing the best. They also happened to have the most recent IP and just a huge market in attendant proxisol and, and its colleagues, 352 and 340. And, um, and so, but to finance that, well, we put it into a wholly owned subsidiary, and, and then I, you know, you then we financed, you know, classic friends and fa- family financing, um, and raised about seven or eight million dollars, and then um, um, and then took that company uh, took that company public in back in 2013. And so, you know, but we but we have long uh, I mean, we discussed it, um, uh, you know, in our very we have long wanted to bring those two companies um, together to unify the. IP. Now that we're talking to big pharma, to you know, ideally they're not going to want to deal with a public company and a private company, um, and that private company is not a university; it's a right. company. John and I were sure were the major shareholders of that company, and um, uh, so yeah. it, it, so we we that company could go bankrupt, whatever it could get into lawsuits. It's it just not an, an attractive solution for big farmers. So we always wanted to unify the IP. And so we just did a lot of legal and tax analysis and decided that the, the lawyers decided the best way to do it was by a, a true formal amalgamation. And, um, and it was a huge amount of uh, paperwork. And since John and I in particular were afflicted, we, we stayed out of it. So um, each company, the private company and the, and the public company created independent board committees, each of whom hired lawyers and each of whom hired independent um, investment banks for um, fairness opinions. And then, and then the, it was pretty friendly negotiation because it was pretty easy to understand the license agreement. The license agreement has been filed publicly uh, since 2013. Since 2013. So uh, any... It, How many pages was that document? Oh, that, yeah, no, about 15. <laughs> not like the registration. <laughs> uh, <Okay. laughs> uh, uh, but in any event, um, a, a long involved legal process, but a rather uh, mundane one. And um, and then the, you had to have shareholder agreements and you had to have shareholder meetings and that sort of thing. In any event, it finally closed last week, which we're, which we're thrilled about. You know, if I had just come across that news and didn't have this interview and, and was talking about it on the podcast, I would be saying, look at this fantastic news. If the guys running this company are unifying their IP into one package, they expect big things on the horizon. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Well, well we do expect uh, big things. Uh, there's always risk, of course. Um, and that is precisely why sure, we did it. Sure. it. Precisely is why we did it, because we're at this stage now where we're um, we're in dialogue um, and, and now. So, in that, you know, we started working on the amalgamation two years ago um, and, and we're glad it's finished because it's a lot of legal work, but, but it, it does, it does, right. it, it does make us more valuable in, in our view. I would think so. One quick question going back to the nuance deal, I guess maybe not quick. Um, 
this was one of my main concerns when I look at, at stocks that aren't necessarily um, like big names and they're traded over the counter or are not really all that well known, not bringing in revenue yet. Uh, with regards to that nuance deal, does that alleviate any concerns of equity raises through stock issuances in the near term? One thing that I'm always on the lookout as a company that's main source of income is by issuing stock. <laughs> and it looks like you guys have not done that in a while. Uh, with the $20 million that you received from nuance, I would assume that that wouldn't be a, a, that much of a concern going forward. Well, let me, let me correct you on one important fact. A, a week after the nuance deal, we did raise money. Uh, it was offered to us by one of the large, large investment banks. And it was a what's called a bot deal. So no, no, at, at a lovely price. It, 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 yeah, I did see at that. a lovely price, no, no risk to us. And so we, we so to, mm-hmm. so those two deals in the course of a week in February together gave us a really nice uh, capitalization and, and put us in a much, much stronger position. So, you know, now we can march forward uh, with our phase threes fully um, negotiate uh, to partner off our drug and not get uh, pushed around not get pushed around because the main way that they push you around is by thinking you don't have enough money to continue on on your own and we clearly do right so, so yeah there are no uh, financing there's no liquidity concerns and there's but there's also no dilution concerns going forward uh, no 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 financing contemplated going forward though I would say one thing I mean retail retail investors you know hate dilution and I hate dilution um, we all hate, hate dilution, right. but but the main form of weakness in a biotech company is not having enough money, not the, the other way around. Another way around. That's how they don't make it. So so, so I, I would caution against the knee jerk reaction that oh gosh, that's more dilution. It, it, it's I don't like being diluted because I have right. but but I like having biotech. I like having a strong balance sheet. Biotech <laughs> takes a huge amount of money to move forward, and you also need to be able to move forward if you're going to partner a drug. Right. I agree with you 100%. I just get nervous when I see a company that does that, you know, every quarter or every six months. Yeah. They're issuing another, yeah. Which I, looking through the financials, I don't see that with the Antib that's been, or Antib. So. We had over $100 million of demand, mostly American, um, for for the mm-hmm. 40 that we, well, I'm thinking in Canadian dollars, for the 40 Canadian that we took in February. Get over 100 million demand, and they, you know, obviously the investment bankers saying, "Take more, take more," because they get a bigger commission. But, <laughs> but, but, but we um, we thought that that was an appropriate and prudent amount. Um, then we're thrilled that we did that. We will look back and please that we made that decision last February. Mm-hmm. I got one more uh, listener question that I want to get through because it actually kind of leads in kind of nicely. That seems like um, he says that you've recently stated that Antib has been. Antib has been well received with institutional investors, but there's not been any evidence of those groups buying yet as far as like 13F filings or, or just the volume in general on that stock. Uh, he wants to know if those uh, institutions are waiting for anything specific or if, the, if there's been any progress in getting more Canadian institutions to invest. Uh, look like you have a conference coming up too. That looks like it's kind of geared towards that Wednesday. I think I saw. Well, that just uh, yeah, we, we, we just like we just like constantly talking to investors. Mm hmm. But it, it, it's a good question. I mean, first of all, you know, the, the United States is 10 times the population of Canada, but it's about, fi- but it's about right. 50 times the financing. It's the capital market strength. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, there are about 3,000 U.S. institutional investors who will invest in small cap 
biotech. Mm-hmm. There's a handful in Canada. It, it's there's a great article uh, in, uh, in our national newspaper last summer talking about this exact problem. It, it, it's a real problem, and, and most of the institutions or uh, who do invest in small cap biotech in Canada, most of them are shareholders of ours. And and if you talk to these institutions in the United <laughs> States, there's not very many. If you talk to these institutions in the United States, many many of them won't invest in OTC stock, or they won't invest in it in a foreign company or a non NASDAQ stock. That is the number one thing holding us back. And, and, and we're planning on going on NASDAQ. We haven't, you know, the, the financing we did in February gave us the strength to calmly go on NASDAQ, which, which we think is fine. And we're just waiting for the, for the opportune time. And we want to more or less line it up with the start of our phase threes. You just answered another question on my list. <laughs> our, our plan stop list is yeah, always on the front of our radar screen. We have a very good mm-hmm. have a very good reception from the sell side in New York. You know, it, it, the investment banks they they would love to take us on the on the Nasdaq, and we want to do it in a calm, strategic way. And you can't rush onto Nasdaq because uh, you, you know your you, your stock won't trade well often. Afterwards, it's a it's a more serious environment than Canada, and so we're now in strong position to do that, and we're going to do it calmly. And and as I mentioned, yeah, more or less time it to be to the uh, beginning of our phase three. Are there any hurdles standing in our way as far as uplisting? No, no, we have we uh, we have the the support of the of the community there, and um, and so it's just it's a question of strategy and timing. We're, uh, it's just a timing thing, right? Yeah, it's a timing thing. No, we, we don't want it so soon after raising money, yeah. and um, you know, and you don't do anything in this. Well, certainly, right. the Canadians don't do anything in the summertime. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think we got through all of my questions and all the the stock twit questions. Dan, do you have anything else you want to ask? There was uh, there was another question from Stock Twits that is is of a, of a different caliber. I think someone MH five 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 or was it you, Kyle? Uh, yeah, no, that he he asked like six questions. I was <laughs> why were the Biopub interviews taken down? I'm assuming these were some good interviews you guys did. Oh yes, that was my question actually. Thank you for finding that. Okay, well there you go. That's question question from my co-host Kyle. Because several of the, the users on StockTwits have commented on that being a fantastic interview and actually listened to him several different times. Yeah, well, when, when um, Mark Swaim interviewed Dr. KSS, as he's called, um, interviewed me, you mean that, is that what you're talking about? Uh, I, I think so. I, I, we couldn't find it because they've been, they'd been gone. No, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 <laughs> I'm assuming this is news to you, Dan. <laughs> that sounds like it. It's news to me. I don't. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I love Dr. KSS. I interact with them every few months. I didn't know that uh, they're, they're no longer there. They, I, I received a lot of nice uh, comments uh, about it. In one of them, I, I was at my farm, and it, it was live. Uh, it was live on video on, on mm-hmm. the Zoom complex Zoom thing. And, um, and it was a fireside chat and my golden retriever, my dog came up and right into the frame of the camera and nudged me to pat him. It was, it was great. It was, a, it was a great moment. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm sure they're, uh, I'm sure I can get a copy for you. Oh, that'd be great. Uh, I want to close things out, Dan, if you've got nothing else with, uh, just a message from user serendipity on stock twits, if that's all right. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Um, this is a response to the, the amazing questions that they, they had written. Uh, they said, the bottom line is that many of today's retail investors are very savvy and intelligent. They're hungry for information and they want to be engaged in what's going on in the companies they invest in. They are doctors, scientists, dentists, and many other professionals invested in Antibes. 
and most would like more than once or two, once or twice a year, see a CEO update or random PR. Antiva is such a great story to share, and these next generation anti-inflammatory anagelistic medications being developed could soon be household names everyone is using and talking about, like Tylenol, Advil, and Aleve today. That's why I'm excited about your interview with Dan and why I replayed those three Biopub interviews dozens of times. To me, it's more than just the financial ROI. I'm actually part of a company that has a potential to impact people all over the globe, including myself and my family. So again, looking forward to listening to your conversation. Those are the types of investors you have, and I just wanted to share that with you. Well, I appreciate that. We love the, the, those those forms, uh, those types of investors, and, and you know, and the more they want to know, and the more the harder the questions. I, I mean, I just think that's great. Uh, right. I mean, I'm going to think about that. We I mean we were we're nice non-promotional Canadians. We don't <laughs> we, we we don't want we don't we yeah. don't. Manage manufacture news we right. don't put out a press release uh, unless we have something um but i'll think about maybe more we do a lot of strategy we have a lot of uh, work going on at the moment doesn't cost very much but this mm-hmm. early candidate development and a number of things that i was talking about but so uh, I'll, I'll talk to my uh, colleagues and we'll, we'll brainstorm perhaps we'll put out um you know like a, a letter from me like we call it a ceo letter we're talking about corporate talking about corporate updates more often than we do. I'll, I'll, I'll take that to heart and really think about it. Oh, that'd be great. Yes, and you're always welcome to come back here if you've ever got anything new to share. Oh, that would be a pleasure. This has been very enjoyable. Pleasure's all on this side. I was going to play a game with you. We usually do one with with our guests, but I don't know if a CEO wants to play uh, uh, better with alcohol, <laughs> where I name different drugs. <laughs> so, so I think we'll just skip that. <laughs> well, next time, see. I'll look forward to that. Is uh, is Doctor Wallace working on any party drugs at the moment, or is it all just beneficial of mankind drugs? Uh, he's he's a bit of a party pooper. It's only beneficial to mankind drugs. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. All right. Well, that was my last question, Kyle. I got nothing else. I've got nothing else either. Thank you so much for joining us, Dan. You're very welcome. Bye now. Uh, take care. We uh we got to close up the China shop here, folks. I hope you've had a great time. It's just been such a blast having Dan Lego here from Antib. Uh really informative stuff. I'm excited about what that company has going in the future. Uh, I don't know about Kyle here, but uh, I've loaded up the uh, the stock ticker on my TD Ameritrade. I'm getting ready to buy shares as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> if, Amer- if Ameritrade let me buy shares over the counter after hours, I would have I I would have to say during not. the course of this interview, I became a shareholder. Um, yes. <laughs> But anyway, we're gonna we gotta wrap up the the interview. We hope uh, you come back and, and join us soon this Saturday for our next exciting episode. Uh, we got a lot more interviews coming up this month as well. Uh, but until then, happy trades! Bye, folks. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks and the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.